Okay, good morning. Well, hopefully you're all doing okay out there. Great to see all of you. As Rich said, I'm going to start a new series of talks this morning. And last week, we concluded our series on spiritual gifts. And there's a lot of energy in the church following the series and our conference on the person and the work of the Holy Spirit. And we are asking, what are the next steps for us? And I urge you to ask the same question for your life. What steps can you take? And you might begin with praying for more of the Spirit's power or specific spiritual gifts. But for Sunday morning, we're going to move forward and return to our normal preaching rhythm. And part of that rhythm includes the Old Testament. And a few years ago, we began an Old Testament journey starting in the book of Judges, and then First and Second Samuel, and then First Kings. And it was roughly a period of 300 years. Today, we're going to start Second Kings. And what is Second Kings all about? Well, Second Kings tells a story of Israel's leaders from about 850 B.C. to 587 B.C. It's a report card of, of, of sort on each king. And this is a time when the nation has now been divided. If you remember from 1 Kings, it's Israel to the north and Judah to the south. And spoiler alert, this story does not end well. There's no... Disney ending here. You saw the subtitle of the series. It's called The Long Road to Exile. The book will end with the people of God being taken captive. For Israel in the north, the road to exile was largely a straight one. They had one bad king after another. For Judah in the south, the road is more zigzag. There were revivals. There were some good kings. There were moments when it looked like things were going to turn around, but poor succession doomed them as new kings took the throne without a love for God, and then they dismantled all of the progress of their predecessor. You know, over this entire period of history, what we see is a slow downward decline. During the days of the judges, there was compromise, right? But it was compromise with a guilty conscience, as uh, Alec Motir described it. For Israel still knew where its allegiance lay. 150 years later, Jeroboam, king of Israel, took compromise to the next stage. He joined together the worship of God, Yahweh, with the pagan worship of Baal trying to siphon off the best of both. Forty years after that, Ahab went even further. He actually built a temple. This is the spiritual, religious, political leader of Israel. He had a temple built for worship of Baal. For Ahab and his wife Jezebel, it was not worship of both Yahweh and Baal in an effort to syncretize the two. No, it was all-out worship of the Baals and absolute rejection of Yahweh. That's how far it had declined. So, let me now with, you see that's the 30,000 big picture view of the book of Second Kings. 
Let's talk about the opening chapters and what we want to cover today in chapters 1 and 2. And if you want to follow along in the, the chair Bible, it's page 307 is where we find 2 Kings. And I've called this opening message, How Shall We Go On? Have you ever, suspect that you have, been in the middle of a project and asked yourself, how are we going to make it to the end? Right? You might ask your, that question in the middle of a kitchen remodel. You might, some women might have asked it in giving a birth to your child. How am I going to make it to the end? My two daughter-in-loves just gave birth in the last seven months. And just remarkable courage that women display. But there's that point, of course, there's no turning back. <laughs> but how am I going to make it to the end? How about that installation of the new software program at work, right? The quality control side of that? Recently, in June, Louise and I were so blessed to visit Europe with some close friends. And just a great trip at this stage of our lives. But I made a rookie mistake. I, um, uh, my shoes quickly wore out. We were doing upwards and over to 20,000 steps a day. We actually began to call them like death marches. <laughs> and over these long walks, of course, our two wives, my friend, friends were Terry and Kelly Lewis, many of you know them, our two wives were just bouncing all along. It didn't bother them at all, but Terry and I were in the back, like just dragging with sore feet and sore backs. And um, on one particular poignant moment, we had just been in the Louvre and uh, escaped claustrophobia there. Thankfully, it's a very crowded place. And when you walk out of the Louvre and look, um, actually when you walk out of it, you can look and see the Arc de Triomphe. Beautiful, magnificent. And it was about lunchtime and I was hungry because I was only eating like croissants for breakfast. <laughs> and I said, well, should we stop for lunch first? No, I think we can make it in about 30 minutes. Another rookie mistake about two hours later. How can I go on? How can I make it? Then of course we get to the ark itself. Uh, you know, it's just hundreds of feet high and realize there is no elevator. We had bought tickets in advance and okay, here we go. We're gonna make it. Might have a heart attack on the way up, but we might, we'll try to make it. Well, we, we did make it, of course. Well, in our story today, we're going to meet these nameless schools of prophets. And I believe that in our story, they represent a remnant of true believers that were living in Israel. And I think this question, how shall we go on, captured their fears and their hopes. Because all odds are stacked against them. They are despised by the influential and powerful, and now the life of their trusted leader, a prophet named Elijah, is coming to a close. And they had to ask themselves, what's gonna happen now? Will faith in Yahweh dwindle to nothing like a stream that has run its course? And maybe, just maybe, in light of the incredibly challenging times that we live in, you have asked the same question. Will the church in America survive to the next 
generation? Will it dwindle to nothing? Well, this ancient story crosses the boundaries of time and culture to speak to us. And I want to read a key section here uh, before we pray. So will you stand? And I'm going to read chapter 2, verses 1 through 9. And for context here, Elijah is the older prophet, the mentor, and Elisha is his, the younger prophet and is his protege. Let's read the word of the Lord. Now, when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind, Elijah and Elisha were on their way to Gilgal. And Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel. And the sons of the prophets who were in Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. I think it means literally, don't get involved. Elijah said to him, Elisha, please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to Jericho. But he said, as the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they came to Jericho. Now the sons of the prophets who were at Jericho drew near to Elisha and said to him, Do you not know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he answered, Yes, I know. Keep quiet. Then Elijah said to him, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me to the Jordan. But he said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them as they were both standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted from parted to the one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. This is God's word. Father, in Jesus' name, as we stand before you, Lead us as a body into worship, into response to your word. We ask you, Father, through your spirit to move and to work powerfully amongst us today, revealing your presence, revealing your grace, revealing your judgment, showing us who you are. May our vision become clear, Father, of who you are and what you are doing in our day And may we learn to work along beside you. Thank you for every spiritual gift that you want to give today. Every ounce of encouragement that you want to give today. Father, we know here, uh, we've just learned of so many in our body, particularly our parents and our fathers that are suffering physically and are in need of healing, are in need of comfort. We pray for that today, for those in our body, particularly our fathers that are suffering. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can take a seat. Okay. To help you follow along today, there are four movements that I see in these two chapters. Number one, 
a plea for help in the wrong direction. Number two, a final confrontation. Number three, a passing of the baton. And number four, an unchanging message. And when we have gone through all four, then we'll ask a question, so what? What does it mean for us today? Okay, let's look first at this point, a plea for help in the wrong direction. Look at the first two verses in chapter one. After the death of Moab, of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now, Ahaziah, yes, that's five syllables in that short name. Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, go and inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So this king replaces Ahab and he's only been serving two years. It's a bad fall. Recovery is in question. But who does the king, the spiritual leader of Israel, turn to? Baalzebub. For him, a favored, trusted Philistine god. Ekron was about 40 miles west of Jerusalem. And Baalzebub is actually a shot of sarcasm. A not-so-flattering barb by the book's writer. It means Lord of the Flies. Or Lord of the dung, where f Dunghill, where flies gather. But at the same time that these messengers embark on their mission, an angel appears to Elijah. God is working. And the angel tells him to intercept these messages. Look at verse 3. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise and go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baalzebub, the god of Ekron? Now therefore, thus says the Lord, You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. Well, these messengers return and tell the king Elijah's bad news. The king, uh, he's aware of this interloper, and he's got some suspicions, and so he asks a couple fashion questions, and he determines that this is the work of his family's long-standing nemesis. This is the man of God, Elijah, who has a nasty habit of always disagreeing and saying no to our best laid plans. So the king sends out 50 soldiers to capture Elijah, who is unarmed and alone. Absolutely, this was a show of power meant to intimidate Elijah. Look what happens in verse 9. Then the king sent to him Elijah, a captain of 50 men, with his 50. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on top of a hill, and said to him, O oh, man of God, the king says, come down. But Elijah answered the captain of 50, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. Fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50. Undaunted, Ahaziah sends out another 50 with, guess what? Same result. He sends out still another 50 for a third time. Now this captain's a little smarter than the second. And he's caught between disobeying the king's orders and making demands on Elijah, as the others did. So he sides with Elijah, 
and he pleads for his life and the life of his men. Look at verse 15. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king. Now this leads to our second movement of the story, a final confrontation. Elijah repeats for the third time and last time he says to the king, is there no God in Israel that you would turn to this false pagan God? Verse 16, here's what happens after the final confrontation. So he died, Ahaziah, he died. According to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken, Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the son of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Okay, so that's our first two movements. What is God up to? Let's stop for a moment and pose the question. What is God up to in all of this? He does not appear very compassionate. He seems quite harsh, indiscriminately throwing fire all around, turning people to toast. Yes, it challenges our modern constructs of who we think God is or who we want him to be. But we have to put this in context. We can't pull this account out of its historical roots and thoughtlessly stand in judgment over it. First, we have to remember, God's people, particularly Elijah, are vulnerable and powerless. They are the marginalized up against a powerful regime. And we learn from this story, by the way, that God defends and protects his weak servants. Secondly, Israel has been in a state of rebellion, not for a few weeks or a few days or a few months or a few years. It's running on centuries. The people have broken the covenant, their agreement again and again. Even aware of the consequences, or at least they should have been, they ignored God and turned their back to him and chased after other gods. And this led to all kinds of injustice and social breakdown. Over and over again, year after year, God showed them grace and did not punish them for their sin. But in this moment of time, however, when faith in Yahweh stood at the brink, the brink, <laughs> brink, the brink, I can't talk, the breach of extinction, or brink, ah, uh, whatever. <laughs> you get the point. Yahweh, in his infinite wisdom, determined that swift and severe judgment was the right course of action. Now, was it fair to some innocuous unknown soldier who was just following orders? Was it necessarily fair? But we can rest assured that God is just. Each man will receive his reward in judgment, whether for good or bad deeds done, the scripture says. Yet the notion that a nameless soldier was merely an innocent bystander in the wrong time and in the wrong place does not ultimately hold water according to the scripture. 
Because for him and for us, we are not ultimately innocent friends, but we are guilty because we have all sinned and we are all deserving of death. Friends, if we breathe and have life today, guess what? It's only because of his mercy. Dale Ralph Davis comments on this disturbing picture of God that we see. And he reminds us that God did not allow Ahaziah's, hope that's the last time I have to say that name, idolatry to proceed in peace. He writes this again, we see our uncomfortable God. Yahweh is furious, not tolerant. He's holy, not reassuring. He's loving, not nice. But there is love in his fury. He won't let you walk the path of idolatry, idolatry easily. His mercy litters the way with roadblocks. That is a wonder considering he so detests our idols. Let's go to the third movement, a passing of the baton. Now, of course, this occurred in the passage that we read at the outset. Now, there's a couple of obvious things worth mentioning, right? Elisha's love and loyalty to Elijah is outstanding. And we can sense, right, the anxiety of the other prophets who wonder what will happen to us in Elijah's absence. Elijah had carried the burden of calling the people back to the covenant with God for a generation. Who will rise up to take his place? But the Holy Spirit, working through the narrator of this story, leaves us indelible markers of God's unchanging purposes. Now, these are not so obvious. But we see from these that God, God's presence is still with them. And God is not in a panic mode. His will is going to be accomplished. And one of those markers is found in verse, uh, verses 7 and 8 in chapter 2. Let's read it again. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at some distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and water was parted to the one side and to the other till the two of them could go over on dry ground. Now the cloak Elijah wore was like a long robe-like coat and was a symbol of the prophet's authority. Now the water parting at the Jordan, walking on dry ground. For those of you who've had a chance to study your Bible, what does that remind you of? Yeah, right? Joshua entering the promised land hundreds of years Earlier, when God parted the Jordan and the people entered into and began the conquest for the promised land. Is that an accident? Is that a coincidence? Of course not. Of course not. Now, we also see an allusion to Joshua in the actual geographical movement of Elijah and Elisha. Now, admittedly, we're going to, I'm just going to get into the weeds here for a few minutes, but try to stay with me. I can see this is a little nerdy, all right? But we'll get to the other side of it, and you'll see this is important. And again, 
If you have your Bible open, page 307 or 308 or whatever, you might want to follow along with this. Because God's saying something significant. And by the way, what he's saying, what he did here was not lost on the prophets, right? Like they got it. They got what God was saying here. Notice that in verse 2, Elijah and Elisha begin in the city of Bethel. In verse 4, they move to the city of Jericho. And then in verse 7, they end up at the Jordan River where this event occurred. Then in verse 11, Elijah is taken from Elisha miraculously in a whirlwind. And after Elijah is taken, Elijah takes up his cloak or the mantle of his ministry, verse 13. So Elisha is now has the authority of the prophet. And then Elisha takes the exact same route backwards from the Jordan, verse 13, to Jericho, verse 18, back to Bethel, verse 23, Bethel. Now, okay, why is that significant? Well, again, if you remember the story of Joshua, that is the exact same route he took hundreds of years earlier, moving into the promised land. Elisha, God is saying to him and to the other anxious believers, your ministry will be like Joshua's. You will retake the promised land. Very encouraging news at Israel's, one of their most lowest times in their spiritual history. Now, this did not happen in Elisha's lifetime, but it did happen following 70 years of exile. Spoiler alert. But that's a story still to come that we'll get to eventually. The point is, is that God is raising up Elisha, a new leader who will carry the mantle of Elijah. And Elijah had parted the waters of the Jordan. Now look at verse 13. And he, Elisha, took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water saying, where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to one side and to the other and Elisha went over. God is confirming the authority of Elisha. And it, this meant everything to the prophets or to the remnant of believers who are watching this, who are trying to keep desperately faith in Yahweh alive. And all of these details and allusions to Joshua revealed the heart of Yahweh. You see, Jezebel had literally sought to annihilate every single prophet just as some nations have sought to do, both in uh, uh, ancient history as well as modern history, they have they're sought to annihilate every single, every single voice, every single piece of evidence that would reflect faith in God. That was what they were seeking to accomplish. These prophets had witnessed the purposes of God seemingly being brought to a screeching halt. The spiritual and political leadership was corrupt and evil to the core. But God had raised up a new prophet who will walk in the tradition of Elijah. In other words, the purposes of God have not changed. 
Now, one last point before we go to the fourth movement. Look at verse 9. When they, had crossed Eli when they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, Ask what I shall do for you before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please, let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. What an amazing ask this is. Elisha, in essence, saying, I don't want the kingdom of God to lose any ground. What God did for you, Elijah, might he do through me. If you go back to the Old Testament law, Deuteronomy 21, 17 specifically, you'll see that the double portion was the inheritance given to the firstborn. Let's go to the fourth and final movement, an unchanging message. Not only does God have unchanging purposes, but it's an unchanging message. And this emerges from the final two stories. Elisha's message will be one of grace and judgment. First, the story of grace in verse 19, chapter 2. Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of our city is pleasant, as my Lord sees, but the water is bad, and the land is unfruitful. He said, Elisha, bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said, Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water. From now on, neither death nor miscarri miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day, according to the word that Elisha spoke. Okay, this is the city of Jericho. And Elisha, having moved eastward from the Jordan, arrived there. Now, Jericho has a long history. As we learned earlier, it was the first city defeated by Joshua in the promised land. And afterwards, Joshua pronounced a curse on the city. We're not told why, but certainly history describes for us these Canaanite countries and how evil and unjust they are, such that they had been marked for God's judgment. And during the days of Ahab, just 40 years earlier, a man in defiance of God rebuilt Jericho. And just as Joshua had foretold, construction of that city cost that man both his firstborn and lastborn son. And the land was still creating death in their children, in their livestock. I mean, nothing, right, is as treacherous as a contaminated water supply. So these men, the city leaders, they recognize Elisha's authority. And they reveal their faith in Yahweh by welcoming Elisha and his word. Elisha asked for a new bowl, indicating God is going to do a new thing. The salt is just a symbol. It's a, it's a, a purification rite. What heals the water is God's word. And what God has once cursed, he now brings favor to. You know, there's a dynamic that we see at play here. And again, Dale Ralph Davis articulated it so well. Here's the, the dynamic we see at play in this, this lifting of the curse. God's word, through God's prophet, brings God's grace to God's people. And as a result, there is healing and transformation. The curse is lifted, and now there's new life. This is what God does to anyone who comes to him in humility and faith. Sin really brought a curse to all of our lives. 
And yet we learn in the New Testament that Jesus became a curse for us. I like how the message translates Galatians 3.13. Paul wrote that Christ redeemed us from that self-defeating, cursed life by absorbing it completely into himself. Do you remember the scripture that says, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree? This is what happened when Jesus was nailed to the cross. He became a curse and at the same time dissolved the curse. What happened here in the city of Jericho was a picture of what Jesus did. A curse, right? A curse. A curse. It, a curse seems like a, a dated notion, right? But it's still a shadow that can loom. For example, you had an abortion when you were younger. Are you supported? And you know intellectually that you are forgiven. But when bad things happen to you, you, you wonder, am I still under God's curse? You had an affair 10 years ago. And you came clean and you saved your marriage. But you still wonder that when stuff goes south, is God still angry with me? You see, grace lifts and removes the curse of sin. You know, Jesus is not only our righteousness, giving us right standing before God, but he's also our sanctification, meaning simply he is our purity before the Father. He makes us absolutely pure before the Father. And Jesus said, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. He imputes to us through his life, his purity, his clean heart, a heart that can see and fellowship and be in union with God, the Father. Jesus lifts the curse of sin and the residual effects of shame and guilt. Friends, isn't that great news? I mean, isn't that the best possible news that you could have been given this morning? He lifts the curse of sin and all of its residual effects. Elisha's message moving forward included grace. But it also would be one of judgment. Now this final story here is bizarre. It is startling. It is misunderstood. It is believed by some to be a myth. But as I will argue, even though strange Reading it in context bears out its eternal wisdom. Verse 23. Elisha went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head. Go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore or mauled, 42 of the boys. From there he went on to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. All right, let's take a few minutes with this. <laughs> How could God's man unleash mama bears on these little boys? Still wet behind the ear kids who were probably taking a water break from their soccer game. 
And here is insecure, oh my goodness, insecure Elisha cursing them for some nameless, for some harmless name calling. Certainly some cast the story that way. But I don't think this is the picture, friends. For one reason, this picture would not be consistent with what we know about God. Scripture reveals to him, outside of any historical contingencies, that he is slow to anger. He's slow to anger. And if we drill down here, some other important things. If we drill down on the Hebrew word for small boys and see how it is used in other places in the Old Testament, it suggests boys much older than 10 to 12. They were more likely teenagers or even older. Secondly, Elisha just does not happen upon them during their soccer game. They left the walled city. They walked through a town gate. They were looking for trouble. The scriptures hint at their evil intent. The language of go up, go up means they were telling Elisha, hey, stay on the road, keep going, get out of our city. Thirdly, 42. Did you see the word of? 42 of the boys, what does that mean? Yeah, it means there were more. 42 of them were mauled, but there were more. The picture that emerges, my friends, friends here, is more of not of some innocent kids, small boys playing pickup soccer. This is more of a roving gang. And imagine how intimidating that would be. You know, if you've ever been surrounded by young men with an angry glare, adrenaline quickly sends danger alerts throughout your body. Now, this happened to me once, though admittedly the circumstances are somewhat comical. <laughs> While still a young man, I drove into the wrong place at the wrong time. And I was immediately, I mean immediately, surrounded by an angry gang of Amish youth. <laughs> it's a true story. It's a true story. It's a couple dozen, literally, of 13 to 18 year olds. They, they didn't look happy. Now, if you knew anything about the psychology of young men who have an over overarching need to prove themselves, well, let's just say they did not invite me in for shoe fly pie and ice cream. <laughs> Nor did I stick around for a theological chat. I got out of there as literally as quickly as I could. Friends, for Elisha, this was a dangerous situation. And certainly he was on high alert. And it was a test, was it not? It was a test, wasn't it, for him? He's newly appointed in this office. Will God protect me? Can God protect me? You know, on top of all this, Bethel, where this occurred, was a center of pagan and idolatrous worship. The prophets Amos and Hosea had condemned Bethel. Motir argues that possibly news about Elijah, Elisha replacing Elijah would have already reached Bethel. And before Elisha is secure and confident in his new office, perhaps the priests of Bethel decide to strike the first blow against him by sending out, or maybe subtly encouraging, this not so welcoming committee. 
You know, Bethel had for generations broken God's covenant. And this is what the law said, Leviticus 26, 21, and 22. If you remain hostile towards me and refuse to listen to me, I will send wild animals against you and rob you of your children. We even see some grace in this because apparently the young boys weren't killed, but they did bear scars. You know, this consequence should not have been hidden from them had they bothered to check. Now, one last point, not quite as important, but why Baldy Head? Right? Every guy here without hair felt that pain. Right? <laughs> like you immediately empathize with Elisha. Little rugrats. Now, again, we're not quite sure how this turned out, but e Elisha. If he was in the right cultural framework of the day, he, he wouldn't have, he would have, he, would, he would have worn a hat, particularly while he was traveling. His head would not have been uncovered. It, it is not impossible as well that Elisha had taken a Nazarite vow and could have actually had very long hair. And thus the roving gang, as we often do, could have chose the opposite descriptor of bald simply as a teasing term. Nonetheless, no doubt, these 42 boys and the scars on their body, born for the rest of their lives, was a constant reminder of God and his power, and God's power to judge. Those scars could become the marks of mercy if they changed their hearts and came back to God with humility and faith. For Elijah, right? It proved to him that God had the power to protect his servants in vulnerable situations. Grace and judgment. Grace and judgment. These were Elisha's message. God's message, like his purposes, are unchanging. For those who are empty, who come to him as empty and recognize their need for God and have faith in him that he exists. For them there is grace, abounding grace. But for those who remain hostile, who are full of themselves, who despise God, there is a sure and certain judgment. This is the unchanging message that reverberated all the way to Jesus and thus remains still our messages today. John 3, 35 and 36, Jesus said the Father loves the Son and has put everything into his hands. And anyone who believes in God's Son has eternal life. Anyone who doesn't obey the Son will never experience eternal life but will remain under God's angry judgment. From generation to generation, God's purpose and message are unchanging. This is who he is. And our vision of him must be clear if we are to answer the question ultimately, how shall we go on? His purposes are the same and his message are the same. All right, so what? Right? So what? 
I mentioned in the introduction that people today, many scholars actually, people who study this kind of stuff, they wonder if the American church is going to survive another generation. Studies reveal that in the vast majority of churches across our country, it's actually my generation, generation around me that is doing most of the giving, most of the volunteering, most of the serving, most of the sharing of the goodness. And there is concern that when my, or for many of us, our generation dies off, the baton will be dropped. Will there be any Elisha? In the next generation, who will give sacrificially? Who will teach our children? Who will lead our youth? Who will become elders and deacons? Who will teach God's word? Who will mobilize others and lead mission trips? Who will engage the lost and preach the gospel? Who will take pregnant women who want to keep their baby into their homes? Who will serve the homeless? Who will build bridges to those of other races in days of racial tension? Or will it all just come to an end like a stream that has run its course? Will people just simply, will the next generation just lose interest? Will they say it's too hard? Will they settle for an easier life and just pass quietly, unobtrusively, the 70 or 80 years given to them? Friends, I am super concerned for the future, as many of you are for the church. But I will also say this that I do not believe this is the fate of this church. I don't believe this is true of our next generation. And I believe that there are better things ahead in store for this church, and especially the generation behind me. I see this next generation coming. Pastor Nick has pointed out to me so wisely recently that the transition that this church will experience in the years to come from our founding generation will not just be the pastors. It'll be the entire church. In the next decade, we will need, and I believe we will see, a new generation of leaders, teachers, elders, sacrificial givers, volunteers, evangelists, missionaries, those sensitive to the hurting, those engaging in our pressing social and moral issues of the day, I believe they will rise up and take this church to a place of greater glory and use in God's kingdom. Fired by the unchanging purposes of God, entrusted with the unchanging message of grace and judgment, they will ensure this church will link arms with other like-minded churches in our city for another generation of kingdom building and with eager hearts advance in our Savior's commission to us, go and make disciples from every people group in the world. This is my prayer, and it is also my confidence. Let's pray. Father,
Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its power. Thank you for its relevance, Father. Thank you for the challenge it brings, the consolation it brings, the joy it brings. Father, your word is so valuable and so precious to us. Thank you for all you're doing in our church and all that you will do in the future. Though certainly, fathers, we sang earlier, we, we do wait for your return. We eagerly await for you, Jesus, to come back, to set up your kingdom, to renew all things, making everything new. We do look forward to that day. And I pray, Father, that this church would press hard to that day. Press hard to the end. Getting to know you, bringing you into every part of our lives, yielding more of ourselves to you, Father. As, as your lamppost comes into our church, as your lamppost comes into our individual hearts, exposing, exposing areas where we still have not yielded ourselves to you. Father, may we yield to you this morning. As we sing now in response, as we move to our ministry time, Father, through your spirit, you have free reign here. You are welcome, Holy Spirit. You are welcome to speak, welcome to comfort, welcome to challenge. We lift our hearts towards you. In Jesus' name, amen.